0: Welcome to First Floor Corner Store, a podcast about building and strengthening community in the built environment. My name is Maggie Krauss, and I am a graduate student of city planning and landscape architecture, and I feel like I've spent the last couple of years hearing about lots of people doing lots of work around the idea of community. And it seems like a pretty basic concept, but I find myself wondering what exactly we mean when we say community, so my hope is to try and connect some of the dots by hearing from different folks in different places in order to get a better sense of why and how and where people are strengthening the communities that they're a part of. We'll start the series with an interview with Gina Ford, who is a landscape architect and principal over at Sasaki Associates in Watertown, Massachusetts. Now, for those of you who might not know, Sasaki is a huge name in the world of landscape architecture. They do projects all over the world. They have over 250 people working in the office that I visited. And Gina has spent the last 20 years working on design projects all over the country. This includes public parks, university campuses, greenways, city plazas, and a lot more. She's incredibly talented, has a ton of experience, and also happens to be one of the kindest and most approachable people that I've ever met in my entire life. So I was very grateful that she agreed to sit down and talk to me about community and how it works itself into the projects that she takes on. I think it makes sense to start sort of at the beginning, which I know you went to Wellesley. And I'm curious, as another person who went to a small liberal arts college, um... I'm curious about how that informed either your decision to go to the GSD or your work here, or kind of what that set you up for. So I I come from a family that's
1: a creative family. My dad is a blues musician. I have relatives that are actors and musicians and artists of different kinds. I was never quite the... Um, full-scale artist. I wasn't that kind of wildly, you know, intuitively creative person. I was much more of a kind of scientist that had more creative leanings. So I was always looking for an education where I could both nurture this kind of mathematics and science piece, but also explore fine arts. Architecture kind of appeared to me in my, when I was in high school, as one of those fields that could balance this, uh, those two things. And so I went to Wellesley partly because To be totally honest, um, Hillary Clinton had just come on the scene. It was 1992. My mother saw her on TV and said, look at her. Wherever she went to school, you should go there, (laughs) which is crazy because that's what I did. So, um, And Wellesley had a joint program with MIT where you could do your liberal arts at Wellesley and and architecture studios at MIT. So it was this kind of perfect world for me. And so that's what I did. I went to Wellesley and did fine arts and art history and sociology Mm-hmm. It could have actually been kind of a triple minor because I was into those things kind of equally, and then I did architecture studios, which is at, at MIT is a little bit sort of like hardcore, you know, um, on the more on the technical side, um, not necessarily on the technical side like construction detailing, but less about sort of fine arts and art history, and more on the sort of drafting and tectonics. Sure. So so I had this really extraordinary kind of joint education um, between those two institutions and um, graduated from Wellesley, not really sure what to do. Um, you might have experienced this. I know you're a Smith grad. Did you do architecture at Smith?
0: I didn't. I did English and Spanish literature. Okay,
1: yeah, see? Totally different. <laughs> <laughs> always the way. <laughs> I mean, I was unusual. At Wellesley, there's like, they graduate maybe five or six at most architecture students per year. So it's a very unusual degree. Mm-hmm. Smith has, I know there are people that do the same there. Right. So you have this, what I think is like the most incredible foundation for design practice because you write and you think and you do theory and criticism and art history but you also have this fine arts and this kind of making thing mm-hmm. and so but for some reason it's it's not necessarily valued in the same way in the world right because you come into a job and people just want you to sort of jump in right and get going and a lot of those critical thinking and theor- theoretical skills are hard to put to work first day mm-hmm. so um but i had the great pleasure of having an MIT professor who recommended me to um, Sasaki and recommended Sasaki to me. He saw a kind of fit there. And I came in and at the time I had some CAD skills, so it was a sort of they were there was a useful role they could put me in. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just a you know it was a great it was just a great fit for me. And so yeah. and I was here three years um, working in landscape architecture without a landscape degree but doing this kind of CAD work and kind of learning the ropes. And then my um, principals at the time, Stu Dawson, who was my mentor, really encouraged me to get a landscape degree. And so I went, decided to go to the GSD, which Sasaki was very supportive of, mm-hmm. and really helped me to go to school and encouraged me to go to school, back to school, and get a landscape degree. And then I came back, and um, I guess it was just four years after coming back from GSD that I became a principal here and yeah. one of the one of the first women principals in this practice, um, and a young one, Mm -hmm. and that was 10 years ago, so. Oh, wow. Yeah. But to your original question, I really believe in the liberal arts education as a great foundation for this profession, especially as we head into more complex communication with communities about climate change, as we think about being vocal advocates, I often see myself as kind of an apostle for the profession and for the issues we address. I think some of the things you learn in liberal arts schools, whether it's Smith or Wellesley, you, you learn how to articulate a point of view in a different way than traditional design language. And right. so to me, those skills have come in,
0: you know, incredib- They've they've been incredibly valuable. Right. Yeah. And I mean, how, so you've been educated and working in the Boston area for what seems like... 20 years A now. good long time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. And I mean, how did you, I'm always curious about the partnership between higher ed and the communities that they're situated in. So mm-hmm. I mean, when you were at Wellesley, did you feel connected to the community you were physically in or was it this more of an isolated yeah. learning experience? Wellesley's, a, Wellesley's um, in, in a
1: lot of ways, it's, um, it's an, I don't want to call it an escape that makes it seem like it's detached. It's a place that gives you a break very clean break from norm normative behavior at and at GSD so I did my master's in landscape architecture at Harvard um there were some studios that engaged with community in really direct ways but most of it was also sort of removed in a way and I think that's actually, a pretty strong critique of the education I got at the time, and I see I see a lot of institutions moving away from that and becoming more service-learning-oriented and more community-engaged, and I think that's a great move for the profession and, mm-hmm. and, and for um, the professional education. Um, all of my experience of building community and leveraging my skills in landscape architecture to help communities has been on the job, really, uh, on the
0: job learning. Yeah and i i mentioned to you earlier i was just in chicago this weekend and i know you guys did the river walk mm-hmm. project i remember you, when i first met you you were talking about some of the exciting aspects of it and the challenges and i i kind of came away from being in that space feeling very energized by it and, and kind of grappling with how someone would even begin on a project like this, trying to find spaces for people and trying to respond to what's already there and trying Mm -hmm. to imagine how to improve all kinds of people's experience of of the place. And so when you think about community, when you build for community in another location, what goes into preparing for that work? I mean, were you doing field work before Mm -hmm. you started drafting? I mean, how did you kind of come into the project thinking about the people who would eventually use it? We... We, we
1: had the great fortune of being asked to participate, to, to lead a team um, in the, the most recent phases of the Riverwalk by an architect uh, there who's been working on the Riverwalk long before us, a, a woman architect who's pretty extraordinary named Carol Ross Barney. So, and she's a kind of institution of Chicago architecture. So one, we had this institutional knowledge on our team mm-hmm. um, and she has a real love and commitment for the river and has been working on it for a long time. As has all of the technical teammates that had worked with her previously, that then worked with us, and so we had we had that. It wasn't like we were just coming in. We were the only. We had a team of probably fifteen consultants. We were the only non-Chicago firm to work mm-hmm. on it, so we it was mostly Chicago. So that's great. And then I think you know, in terms of um, design and creative process, it was it was pretty immersive. I mean, we went there multiple times at the beginning of the process and just got a lay of the land. I think. You know, I always had this sense that that site to me was, that site to me is like a magic, special, sacred place in that city. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mayor calls it the, an urban canyon because you've got the skyscrapers and this kind of made river, and then you have these the bascule bridges, which give it like a rhythm and a and and they have their own kind of presence. I think I think I always felt a certain like humility. About my, my, my own hand in that, and wanted to just really observe it and, and be respectful to it, yeah. um, but also amplify and make connection to it. Um, so, we did a lot of observation there. And then the last piece was like a lot of I read, you know, David Saltzman's The History of the Chicago River book cover to cover. I read Devil in the White City cover to cover, which, you know, is a kind of a weird, quirky way of thinking about totally. Chicago history. <laughs> Um, and we read every plan that had been done for this stretch of the river going back 30 years and like 20 different studies had been done. So listen to the voice of the community through all of these efforts. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of alignment about where people wanted to see this river walk go. Um, and then in, in conjunction with that, did a lot of looking at other river riverfront projects of recent decades in the last 10 years, mostly with this big idea of making people reconnect with the river as a, as an asset. So just simple strategies, like you couldn't know from being there it, as you saw, but what it used to be like was you were like kind of high and dry and removed from the river and now we've brought it down so that you're like right at the water's edge. And mm-hmm. and just that one move completely changes your relationship to the river. You feel like you can touch it. Right. right. I mean, I think that's people come back and they email me from the, the experience of the river walk and they just, there's all kinds of this like really flowery language about subaquatic experience and like you know didn't understand whole new view of Chicago right. whole new relationship to the river and I think it was just because we did that right so yeah. it's like simple get people close to it get them so that they feel like they're 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 one with it right um, and even though it's just going to shift a mindset so so all that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the best ideas are usually very simple, right? It's mm-hmm. it's looking at a place and saying, what are the assets and how do we mm-hmm. get people closer in touch with them? And obviously, the, not that's not to undermine how no. much work went into it, but yeah. it's, it sometimes feels... I think designs are most effective when they just kind of do the logical thing, which is get people more in touch with their surroundings yeah
1: I think too I think the spaces because you know we, we did this vision together with Carol um as the six blocks and then we each took a different space and we we designed and and implemented each of them and so we did the the floating garden room going from west to east unusually the jetty and we Sasaki led the marina and the cove which have in common as as the three projects that we detailed designed um You know, I I was really driven by and really thought a lot about human body scale of space. I was telling you earlier um, on our tour of the office that we did a lot of one-to-one mock-ups of things like seating That the marina bench. If you saw it, that's the bar. We built that in full scale multiple times. Mm -hmm. We sat in it ourselves. We, like labored over just this detail just that it would feel good against your knees that you would give you the right angle of repose to sit and rest wow not like an uncomfortable i find because i'm a big person too like i find in parks often the benches are like teeny and you're like perched (laughs) in this really uncomfortable (laughs) way i wanted something where you could like drop your shoulders and sort of relax your body right um so and we did that in all those spaces is really just thinking about these really basic human and also just this kind of This kind of like, how do you make spaces that are tight, because right we only had a little tiny space to work with, tight, but have a lot of different um, function and utility, so you're kind of taking advantage of every space as useful space, and space that you feel safe and comfortable to be in for long periods of time. Yeah. Yeah. Did you feel that, all that? Well, you know, (laughs)
0: it's funny. I am so critical of the built environment, which I think makes sense, because I'm studying landscape architecture, but... I I want to believe that I maybe notice details that other people might not notice but it doesn't even matter if you notice them it's just I mean some people say you know good design is design you don't notice right if you feel like you can sit in, on a bench for an hour yeah you might not be appreciative of it in terms of the way we might be appreciative of it but it, it means it works and that's yeah. kind of the ultimate goal of yeah. design but and it's interesting I mean there's the scale the variety of scale that you work in on projects like mm-hmm. this is just, absolutely mind-blowing to think that you need to think holistically enough to figure out circulation so how do people experience it as a whole but also how do people experience the moments they choose to sit or yeah you know is there a place to tie your shoes or take a picture or um and I was thinking a lot about the different kinds of folks who end up using this space so the people who kind of to me were visibly tourists and people mm-hmm. who were coming for this experience of of a city as a whole but in this one confined experience And also thinking about people who run, you know, every day there or people who call Chicago home and and this is part of that landscape. Um, But I think a lot about how you physically welcome people into space and how also you need to maybe socially and culturally welcome people into space. I always think about something like the High Line, where the High Line has become one of the most successful urban park projects and a lot of people refer to it and when you're in it and on it, you feel a certain way. And I also wonder if you can zoom out how it feels for people who've lived there for a long time, or how does it feel for the larger community to kind of fit the pieces together? Um, And I mean, the best thing you can do for a person is make them feel welcome in a space. And I know that sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. And I, I wonder if you have any insight on. It's all, it's all really beautiful thoughts, Maggie. I think one of the things I've
1: thought a lot about. So Chicago, back to mega Chicago, just in the year we opened the first phase of the Riverwalk, the new Riverwalk pieces, um, launched three other major projects, maybe even four. Navy Pier that Field Operations is working on, the 606, which is Michael Van Valkenburg, and Aggie Daly, which is Michael Van Valkenburg. There are other projects, but I think those are each like 50 to $100 million landscape-driven, landscape-led mega-projects, right? And they all happen at the same time. And those firms, uh, Field Ops and MBVA and I, have um, been out in the world together talking about those projects as a collective. And one of the things we all noted separately in our own design exploration was this idea that people are moving back to cities um, where Millennium Park often feels like that postcard view of Chicago where you go for the big event and it's this sort of touristy place we all in separate ways wanted these places to function as well for residents as it did for tourists right Mm. so it's not just about the postcard view it's also about giving opportunity for different kinds of interaction so the running the fitness the kayaking the um you know the going and having dinner or a drink or a cup of coffee um really Mm. wanting it to feel like these are people's backyards and it or front yards, or whatever you want to call it, but it, it really changes the way you think about design to try to think about broadening that user profile. Mm-hmm. You could imagine a Chicago Riverwalk phase twos and threes like we did, where there was a really elegant traditional promenade, you know, with occasional benches and beautiful paving and a beautiful railing, and um, and it could have been an, a successful, beautiful project. But we really wanted to move away from the single-use connective piece to something that had program and place and activation built into it, So, for exactly that reason. So, you know, the commuter could go from point A to point B, and or the tourist could come and take some photos of the buildings, but there's also a place where parents of a kid who has no yard could come down and do a kayak lesson, you know? Right. Or, so uh, it was very much front of mind, and I, I, I do think that... Um, I do think that it's a pretty extraordinary set of opportunities and challenges. Because the, f- the flip side, which I think there's been some criticism of the project about privatization of public space and you know the project was built through um, a funding mechanism that requires that the project actually pay back the loan that built it hmm. through revenues generated. So there's yes. this like huge burden on the project to make money. Um, and so you have things like restaurants that are taking over the terrace. Yeah,
0: all over the place. All over the
1: place. I so many restaurants. Jammed with people. Yeah. And some people say, well, this is a public space. You know, how, how why can't I sit there? I can't sit there unless I buy something. And I, I get that, but at the same time, um, you know, how do you make public space when there's no money? Right. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, is it better to have like a? Is it better to have a public space that has a dimension of publicness but also has privateness in order to pay for the publicness? I mean, it's just this
0: constant tension right. about whose space is it and how does Absolutely. it operate? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's it's likely an issue that's going to continue evolving in cities all yeah. over the country because there is, I think, more and more places are recognizing the importance of those kind of iconic. Uh, epic landscapes mm-hmm. you know, landscapes that will actually draw people to a city and maybe I'm just in the thick of school so I'm thinking really intensely about this but I think more and more people are on board to say it's really important to have green space in the mm-hmm. city and I think it's really important to have a place to sit and pause in the hectic chaos of urban life especially as we realize that more and more people are finding themselves back in cities and I think it can be both I think it can be public space that has real economic requirements because (laughs) you
1: know it's it's like there's this really heartbreaking thing god there's this really heartbreaking thing where like you as a landscape architect you might experience this someday or maybe you have but you you do your best and you put something into the world and in the then the critics come out and they have these things to say which are from the intellectual side of it i can completely appreciate like the other example is we we um we did a lot of the flood recovery work in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, after they had their flood. This was like a seminal project for me at the beginning of my principalship here at the office. And we were so proud of ourselves because we led this insane multi-year recovery project with a community that had lost a lot, but wanted to come back bigger and brighter and stronger. And we did everything. We, we gave it our souls to make this plan mm-hmm. happen and some really positive things came out of it. But every time we presented at an ASLA conference or anywhere professionally, someone always raises the bigger questions about watershed planning and impacts of this community's new flood protection on downstream communities. And these problems that are like so much bigger than the problem we were given that are absolutely essential but couldn't be solved with the boundary of the problem we were given. And it's similar with Chicago. I have some of the critics saying to me, well, sure, you got people access to the water, but why didn't the city spend that money on stormwater improvements? Because the river's dirty, you know. Right. Or like, how could this exist in a place where there's shootings happening in the neighborhoods, you know? And you just want <laughs> to say, you you can't let the wicked problems stop you from doing good things that that might be smaller. Or right. um, I, I always make the argument with the Riverwalk project that just getting people to be more aware of the river and value it a little bit more won't clean the river but maybe it will someday right, right? maybe it'll build stewardship for that resource in a way that it doesn't exist now
0: mm-hmm.
1: anyway it's just to yeah. say sometimes it just feels like it's never good enough you know and right. you, you just want to
0: like <laughs> Come i <on> people <laughs> i can relate to that just being in school you work a whole semester on a project and then it seems like when it comes time to present it all you get is negative feedback yeah which I think that's kind of par for the course. I mean, you, you can labor over every little detail and kind of defend the reasons that you did yeah. what you did, but someone will always kind of voice a concern, which I think is a really healthy, productive way to occupy space is to have that constant flow yeah. of feedback. And and, yeah. yeah, and criticism. Yeah, and it feels important. Like
1: I said, as, as an intellectual, I can appreciate it, and I can also say, yes, watershed planning. Yes, stormwater management that doesn't mm-hmm. pollute the river and no, no combined CSOs and all that good stuff. But at the same time, like, let's take a second and, ap- and appreciate that we need to systematically and incrementally make positive change right. somewhere, right? Anyway, I'm being too hard on the critics. It's just to say, yeah, I wish these projects, I wish we could solve the wicked problems Absolutely. with projects. Yeah.
0: yeah, and and I'm thinking too, I mean, you, so we, we did a tour earlier and you mentioned there's a lot of urban design thinking happening here and there's also a lot of campus mm-hmm. planning. And I think of campus environments and campus landscapes is so, such unique spaces, right? Because there's constant turnover from students. So any attempt to really connect with your audience or your users is going to vary given who's there and who's engaged in thinking about what these spaces could be. And I know, you know, I I watched a talk, folks who were talking about a new campus plaza or a new campus center at Williams College, I mm-hmm. think, and there was a lot of pushback from students because their concern was that some basic priorities were not being addressed, but they invested all of this money in mm-hmm. you know, a built environment, which my heart is broken when those things surface because I believe so much in the power of landscape, but mm-hmm. I also believe that it is important to see both sides of the story and understand that if someone feels like there needs to be more I don't know, mental health resources on campus or there need to be more RAs or, you know, they need to be sourcing food more locally. You know, there's so many priorities to consider. Um, And, you know, I know as someone who graduated from Smith, I've been very a part of, very much a part of the dialogues. You know, there's a new library happening. So all this money and all these resources are going into that when there's still some very basic needs that need to be filled at Smith. And there's a lot of students who, who, again, don't feel socially or culturally welcome at Smith. And, you know, there's talk about making the whole campus more accessible for folks with mobility issues or reimagining what, you know, policies on admission are for trans folks. I mean, there's so many kind of core dialogues that are happening, and then they unveil these, like, Big splashy library. Yeah, and so it's trying to figure out, like, how do we... How do we build and and continue to think critically about the landscape, which again I believe is so important. This is like so, Maggie. You're
1: like forecasting a conversation that I've just started, um, just started over the last couple of years, and I will talk about at the ASLA, which is brilliant, and I'd love your take on it more. But <laughs> so I just did this project with Susanna Ross and a big team here for Syracuse University. I knew, and I I was telling you I do mostly public work, but occasionally there's a Uh, institutional client or an institutional project that for some reason I'm the most qualified or most interested in. So this one was like a a closure of a a street into a pedestrian promenade at the kind of front edge of campus in Syracuse. And I was most qualified because I've done like some street closure kind of pub I did the, worked on the Ithaca Commons, which was also similarly a pedestrian mall kind of space. And so mm-hmm. you learn lessons that are replicable. So we, we pursued this, and we wanted, and we did this project. And it, it, during the process, students came out and protested the project. Oh, wow. I mean, more protests. They had a petition. Bless their hearts. I think it was extraordinary. That, and it was exactly this issue. They were saying, we shouldn't be investing in beautification. We should be investing in education and mm. paying our teachers more. And this is where the part of our profession where you need to be an apostle comes in, right? This is the part of the profession where you need to be able to articulate why it's not a beautification project. Um, and what's so fascinating, so they, they protested, you know, they didn't want the project to happen, there was a petition, the, the, the university did what it could to sort of like talk through that with the community, but they were slated to do it and they knew that there was a, there was a master plan that set this up, so there was a lot of commitment to it. And it was, frankly, a really good idea. So we wound up over the course of a summer ripping out the street and putting in this pedestrian promenade. And the students came back. And within like a few weeks, there was one of the biggest Black Lives Matter protests on the promenade that the mm. campus had seen. So all of a sudden, this project that they protested, that the, a lot of the student body protested, became the place to protest. Right. And it was like, that's very poetic. Right. I was, it was, it was so powerful to me. And there's have since been many protests. And so, you know, and I, this is what I'm going to talk about. The ASLA is like you, it's not about beautification. Great. It's beautiful. Great. It adds value. Great that it's going to make more students come here. It's going to make you more competitive. So you can pay your teachers more, right. all of that. You have to make that case, but then you also have to make the case. It's a bigger idea than a walkway, mm-hmm. right? It's, public space it's democracy it's your voice that we're building here right Mm -hmm. we're giving you a place for your voice and your life to happen right and we're building community and so you know i don't know about the big splashy library (laughs) Smith, but i think you could probably make a case too about i'm sure smith is thinking that it needs that library or to to improve quality of dialogue and collaboration and education but also to be competitive against its peers who are right. also so you know it's it's sort of a much bigger argument you need to make about it yeah that that's going to support in some ways um the economic necessity that is then the underpinning of trans policy and accessibility and you know what i mean right. like how do you make those things happen if you don't have the resources if you don't build the resources. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So interesting. It is very interesting. Let's do one very quick wrap-up question. Um, I'm curious what the design community is like here. I mean, you've said there's over 200 people who work in this Mm -hmm. office. Does that feel... Like a community that really knows one another and talks to each other, or are things kind of siloed based on projects? What do you.? We have, um, so we have, there's like lots
1: of different layers to Sasaki. We have um, the big office, which is 275 people here. Then within that, we have two studios, which are about equal. And then within that, you have constantly changing project teams that can be between, you know, three people to 10 people. And so usually people find it very overwhelming at first, and then over time sort of fall in with a certain set of projects or or principles or leaders, and over time sort of develop a stronger sense of community. We do a lot here around creative dialogue. Um, We do a lot of presentations. We do a lot of gardening, as you saw, Fab Mm -hmm. Lab. We do all of these things that are really meant to sort of foster a creative community and um, and strengthen it um, and it's when you walk around I mean you kind of saw it it feels like an alive place most of the time and when people make the decision to leave here they're always really heartbroken about that piece of it you know it's like yeah. this is like it becomes a really strong place of community over over time right a little overwhelming at first but over time yeah
0: Super important.
1: We're gonna get kicked out.
0: Yeah, we should close Uh, up. But thank you so much. Thank you so much. Grateful for
1: your insight. That was so fast and so good. Yeah, we covered a lot
0: of ground. Yay, good. (laughs) Okay, that's all for now. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope you learned something today. I hope that you listen to the next episode as we continue to explore and redefine what we mean when we say community and how we work on making it better.